Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. March 2005. A man in his early 20s walked into a dinner held by the Thatcherite Conservative Way Forward Group. He had brown hair, Medium build, unassuming, he wore a smart suit. The name he gave? Triggered, no alarm bells. At first glance, there was nothing that differentiated him from all the other young men filing into the hall. Anyone who had looked closer, though, might have seen this man was visibly nervous. Every so often, he would tap his right-hand pocket and glance around. But no one did notice. So the spy managed to get in, get what he needed, and get out, without anyone ever knowing who he really was. We were systematic in wanting to expose that difference between what people really felt and what they were saying publicly. It had a really significant effect, I think, in that run-up to the campaign. That's John Woodcock, a former Labour spy. Sorry, I mean, a former Labour researcher, and now a crossbench peer. That was just before Tony Blair secured a third Labour victory. The campaign was helped in a small way by the political dark arts performed by Woodcock. Now, nearly two decades later, campaigns can still live or die on secret recordings, briefings and opposition research. It was, in fact, opposition research from the Shadow Justice team that was responsible for those highly controversial Labour attack ads seen earlier in the year. You remember, the posters that claimed Rishi Sunak was personally responsible for sex offenders not being locked up. Labour is facing criticism, including from within the party, for posting a message on its official Twitter account suggesting that the Prime Minister doesn't think child sex abusers should go to prison. I stand by what this tweet is and and this campaign is trying to highlight. It's wholly legitimate. I think it's an important part of politics to hold politicians to account. The whole affair caused huge internal party strife, but we know now they were decided upon after taking advice from the Australian Labour Party. Aim low and get personal if you want to win. Of course, it's not just Labour thinking about their electoral strategy. The Times reported last weekend that some Tory MPs are telling the Prime Minister he needs to get more aggressive in going after Labour. Because it's nearly time for a general election and British politics is entering campaign mode. And that can mean more dark arts, more dirty tricks, and more negative campaigns. But do the attacks politicians throw at one another grab voters' attention or turn them off? How far is too far? Is everything fair game in the pursuit of political power? 
As we gear up for the 2024 election campaign, I thought it was high time someone made a handy guide to the political dark arts. I'll hear from a hack. The best political stories from our point of view are scandals where it's going to end someone's career. A spy. I do remember being profoundly nervous and worrying that people are going to recognise you. An attack dog. If someone's saying something privately, it's what they're saying publicly, then it's fair game. And a chief whip. Does persuasion ever sort of tip into coercion? Oh, for some people, I'm sure it would be experienced as that. From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're going inside our political party's fabled attack units and asking, have the dark arts had their day? Conservative Party headquarters is a large, open-plan office space on Matthew Parker Street, a quiet road in among the back streets of Westminster. It looks like any other nondescript office space in central London, but of course, it is not. Inside this building, a lot of plotting goes on. Sometimes that's looking at opposition research, a devastating story they've found on a Labour candidate. Sometimes that's deciding where to send a spy. Not a spy of the MI6 variety, of course, no. This sort of spy is a young party member or official with no profile who can go undercover and find out what's really being said behind closed doors. And the opposition are at it too. I do remember being profoundly nervous and worrying that people are going to recognise you and your tape recorder is concealed in your jacket and the microphone is a concealed microphone but you don't know if it's going to go right or someone's going to sort of notice. This is John Woodcock talking about his experience in 2005. Our job was to build up that research picture of things that various members of the Conservative Party mainly said and did and a relatively small part of the the job but high impact was that contrast between what politicians would often say when they would think they were talking to their own supporters and the way that they, they might relax and be less guarded and more more honest and then what they would present publicly. When you did get a recording, we would tend to to find ways for that to appear in the press without wanting to have our own fingerprints over it. At the time, Labour were accusing the Tories of planning massive cuts to public services if they got into power. The Tories argued they would only cut waste and unnecessary spending. Labour claimed the Tories' plans would leave schools and hospitals in peril. The Tories said this was a downright lie. Howard Flight clearly got a bit carried away. Howard Flight, the MP for Arundel and South Downs and Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party, was addressing the Conservative Way Forward dinner. Little did he know who was listening in the audience. He basically said exactly what our attack on the Tory party was. Oh, we've got this cuts programme now, but it'll be so much bigger. We'll be able to cut so much more once we're actually in election. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is manna from heaven. And so you're you're sat there and you're thinking, is the secret tape working? Is it working? Is it in my pocket? Are they going to get this? And then you still remember the excitement of, of sort of, 
you know, leaving the room and wanting to kind of keep my head down and being up first thing the next morning and transcribing it and realizing it was as good as we uh, as we thought. This was given directly to a journalist at the Times and the the Times were going to put it straight on their front page the next day and even before the Times front page came out Michael Howard was being advised by Linton Crosby they were clearly very much in we've got to shut this down and so the way that they tried to shut it down was they actually sacked Howard Flight before the Times had even come out, thinking that you could kind of try and kill this story dead. But in fact, we were going into the Easter weekend, and it was just that way that there wasn't much else happening. So Labour made this the only thing they wanted to talk about, and they were stood in front of these big posters with sort of toxic signs or warnings and uh, Tory cuts. And because Linton Crosby and Michael Howard had already sat, it's like, what else do we do? Because they haven't killed the story by... And so, I mean, within a few days, they actually, I do feel, still feel a bit bad about this. I mean, he has ended up in the House of Lords. But they stopped Howard Fight from being an MP. They, they banned him from actually standing at the next election. The Tories were desperate to move the narrative off their supposed cuts plan and on to Labour's dirty tricks in obtaining the recording. This resulted in, bear with me here, a blind German exchange student being accused of being the spy. The poor man's picture splashed across newspaper front pages and he was named live on Newsnight. But CCHQ had got it wrong. The student had been in Germany the whole time. It became sort of part of the comedy of the story itself and it had a really significant effect in that run-up to the campaign. Political espionage, obviously, is not just a Labour tactic. In fact, it's now such an established tradition that Labour and the Tories have an agreement. They are both allowed to send two spies into each other's annual party conferences to see what they can find out. They're made to wear special lanyards. And the Tories even hang pictures of the Labour spies in their conference press office, just so everyone knows who the enemy is at all times. To be totally honest, it was finding out about this that made me want to do this episode in the first place. I've always been obsessed with spying, ever since a woman stopped me in a lift and asked if I'd ever considered working for the, uh, foreign office. But that's a story for another day. One of the most common tactics is sending people undercover to events. So that can be as simple as speeches, but it can be like dinners, away days. This is Giles Kenningham, former Conservative head of comms for the Conservative Party under David Cameron. He now works at Trafalgar Strategy and hosts the Hacks and Flax podcast. Probably the best example I've got was in December 2014 at the height of the UKIP surge, I sent two people to go to the UKIP London Christmas party. So they get there and I get a panic phone call at seven o'clock going, shit, 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 shit. I'm like, what is it, what is it, what is it? They're like, that guy, the tampon reception, He's here at the UKIP party. The receptionist at Conservative Party headquarters. So I was like, oh my God. We then Googled the guy's name and had seen he'd written all these articles like pro-Brexit for the Express. Now, the worst part of all of this was that he was the temp who'd be on reception when we went to party conference. So basically, he had access to the whole of CCHQ. So potentially could have blown the whole thing up. 
So obviously that, there we hit peak paranoia and we were just sort of thinking, what do we do? Do we out him? Do we try and get ahead of it? And in the end, we did nothing, but it actually transpired. It's classic UKIP that it was more cock-up than conspiracy and he wasn't an undercover agent or anything like that. They had someone there who basically had the keys, you know what I mean, to the machine who could have blown the whole thing up and yet, no, didn't. Can I just take you back to sort of when you entered politics and started seeing the political dark arts, the political espionage, because I think listeners outside politics might be surprised that that kind of thing goes on. Do you remember the first time you heard about it? I think very quickly you become quite guarded. There were so many times I think like Nick Clegg got caught on a plane like speaking to Danny Alexander, slagging off one of his MPs. Like always being very careful about where I spoke to people, that there wasn't someone behind me. But I think in a world where, you know, we do live in an era of sound bites, a lot of stuff is quite sanitised by political parties. You do need to run these accountability campaigns, which are completely legal, but hold people to account. You know, I think it's totally justified. If someone's saying something privately to what they're saying publicly, then it's fair game. And obviously, you know, there's a bit of fun to it as well. And there's one up to the 2015 election, we had tons and tons of recordings of Labour MPs, John Cruddus, who's uh, Miliband's policy chief, slagging him off. And Labour kind of saying, oh, it's outrageous, it's dirty tricks. It's like, yeah, but they've said it, right? There's no dispute here. Like, tough just crack on with it. So I think most of the time they're completely justified. When you say you have recordings, is it the thing that you sort of store them up and then we'll sort of have this information, like a treasure trove of sort of information attack that you can wheel out at the appropriate time? Yeah, and often we would use the Sunday papers to do that because Sunday papers set the agenda. You often get two days coverage out of them broadcast bulletins, pick them up. There'll be some stuff which you might decide you might want to hold it back. For instance, if you've got some candidates who've just said some absolutely appalling things, you might want to hold that back and drop it in the middle of an election when they can't unselect a candidate. It's almost too late. If you've got stuff on the leadership, it just depends what it is. It depends what kind of narrative you want to get going. Because bear in mind, it does take a long time to get into the public's consciousness. There'll be some stuff you'll be wanting to drop now to reinforce a perception or a narrative that you want to push. So you've sort of, CCHQ is sort of building up this treasure trove, potentially even sort of starting now for the next election. And then how does that get from candidate to the Sunday papers? Is it a walk around Green Park? Is it just <laughs> a WhatsApp? Have you ever done some like secret walk with a baseball cap on to give this story? No, I don't think so. I think it was a question just handing it over and often it would just, you know, when they're good, they will sell themselves. The ultimate receptacle of dark arts handouts in Westminster is seen as Guido Fawkes. The name of the website is, of course, based on Guy Fawkes' name. You know, the English Catholic who, in 1605, was involved in a failed gunpowder plot to assassinate King James I and blow up Parliament. The best political stories from our point of view are scandals where it's going to end someone's career. This is Paul Staines, the founder and editor of the website, which was set up in 2004. A lot of the lobby think that we're the main conduit for CCHQ's incredibly all-powerful opposition research CRD department. I would be less than truthful if I said that we never get handouts. But the only reason they know about it is because they've seen those handouts as well. So don't think that my rivals don't also get handouts. But it's often the other way around where we generate stories and they distribute them out. And we don't just work with the um, opposition research department of the Tories. Believe it or not, we have over the years had quite a good relationship with Labour, particularly during, say, the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, TBGBs 
where the Blairites would give us stories to attack the Brownites. The Brownites would give us stories to attack the Blairites. We don't mind where we get the ammo from. We'll chuck it in both all directions. Staines also points to his and his reporters' own journalism and undercover work. We will sometimes pretend to be people we're not to get things. Now, I think that's fair game, because if the politician is going to lie, then I don't see why any harm us using a bit of subterfuge. And can you give me an example of you guys sort of using different identities to get good stories? We're not going to tell you how we do it. <laughs> no. Well, OK, I'll give you something in principle. We might call up someone junior and to pretend to be someone senior that they've never met possibly. What happens is they get very nervous, don't they? It's also a way of getting past receptions, basically. If you pretend to be, say, I don't know, a cabinet minister, they will put you through and they will tell the person on the receiving end that, oh, it's um, it's Michael Gove calling. They'll answer it and we'll go, it's Paul Staines. And they'll think, shit, I thought it was going Michael Gove. At about the point I'm speaking to them, I will tell them who I am. But it, to get past and get to speak to them, I might pretend to be someone else. So... Westminster gatekeepers, take note. Next time you're told, you have an urgent call from Michael Gove. When the blog was five years old, it broke a story about the so-called master of the dark arts. Damien McBride, who was then Prime Minister Gordon Brown's right-hand man, was involved in plotting, scheming, leaking. You name it, he did it. In his own words, McBride gave his boss the best possible press he could have hoped for. He later revealed all this and more in a memoir called Power Play. The most famous one we did was probably Smeargate in 2009, which dominated the news agenda for weeks. It curtailed Damien McBride's career as Gordon Brown's dark arts henchman when he was caught organising a smear campaign in writing with Derek Draper. Derek Draper, who was another Labour insider, was at that stage founder and editor of website Labour List. They were going to set up Red Rag, which was going to be their version of Guido Fawkes, which they saw as a thorn in the then Labour government's side. Damien McBride used his number 10 email address to send messages about a planned website that would smear leading Conservatives with intimate stories about their personal lives. The Red Rag website had been intended to publish attack stories about then-leader of the opposition, David Cameron, rumours of Conservative MPs' personal lives, and to, quote, put the fear of God into George Osborne. They wanted a plausibly deniable front for which Downing Street could recycle smear stories. And the planning of it and all the emails concerning of it unfortunately came into my hands, so... It backfired quite badly because I remember the Tories were having trouble breaking through 40 percentage in the polling. And that weekend where it broke, they lost five percentage points. And Gordon Brown's mythical moral compass kind of got shattered as well. But it is the attacks on Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair that Brown's former henchman McBride is most notorious for. The TBGBs, as the civil war between the supporters of Blair and Brown was known, saw column inches filled with briefings and counter-briefings. Blue on blue briefings and red on red wranglings are staples of British politics, as uh, Rishi Sunak is finding out today. There are periods when it seems like parties spend more time attacking their own side than their opponents. This, of course, is another side to the dark arts of politics, the internal dark arts. 
Historically, it's the job of the Whip's office to keep their own side pulling in the same direction. Tony Blair's first chief whip, Hilary Armstrong, insists that Blair was pretty uninterested in this kind of stuff. When I was appointed, the Prime Minister said to me, I want to change the perception of chief whips. This former chief whip is Hilary Armstrong. She's now in the House of Lords. I don't want them to be seen as bullies, as intimidating, as threatening. So we weren't as interested in the dark arts as we were in persuasion and changing people's understanding of where they were, what they were doing, what the timing was, and so on. But that doesn't mean to say that I am naive enough to think that some of the whips would nonetheless be very tough with people and then somebody would come and complain that their whip had been threatening them. So I would go through it and I would say, you do realise you're breaking the standing orders here because you didn't do this or you didn't do that. And they'd go away a bit chastened. And you say Tony Blair came in and said, I don't want sort of dark arts, I don't want bully boy tactics. What had come before that made him say that? Oh, just the reputation. Goodness only knows. Everybody went on at me about, did I have a little black book? The answer is no, I didn't. But they all assumed that you did. And of course, now you hear everything about sexual allegations. In those days, it was much more that you would hear if somebody was leaving their wife or was having an affair or whatever. And I know that in some whips' offices, I have to say... All the gossip I used to hear was from the Tory whip's office, that they would have used that, that you don't want so-and-so to hear about so-and-so. And I'm sure that went on a little bit in mine, but we didn't have it all written down in the book. Did you threaten anything? Oh, I would put people on difficult committees if they were misbehaving because there are some committees that you really don't want to get onto if you're a Member of Parliament. And in those days, it was the whips that put them on committees. So, you know, those committees where you were looking at um, private bills, where you can't, you're not allowed to miss a session constitutionally. So you've got to turn up, and it's the most boring planning. You know, they nearly all are around some sort of planning. Is there anything that you did then that would be unacceptable now? I did get reports about, and there is somebody who says that they were threatened up against the wall by a whip. I did have words of the whip and say, that's not the way we do it. Because we had the big majority, we didn't need to take action against people who were breaking the rules of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the standing orders, like Jeremy Corbyn. But the boss was not interested in taking anybody out, (laughs) so I didn't. What would you have done if you'd... Oh, we'd have suspended him. There were several counts by which he'd broken the standing orders. But, you know, Tony never wanted to take anybody else out. To think the whole course of recent political history could have been changed if Tony Blair had been more keen to, uh, take people out. As Hilary Armstrong acknowledged... Blair's approach to the dark arts may be explained by the size of his majorities, which meant he could afford a few rebels. However, a majority of 80 wasn't enough to stop Boris Johnson's Downing Street and Whips undertaking negative briefings against their own side. In recent days, a number of members of Parliament have faced pressures and intimidation 
from members of the government because of their declared or assumed desire for a vote of confidence in the party leadership of the Prime Minister. That's Tory MP William Ragg, Chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, speaking in January 2022 when he accused Whips and Number 10 of seeking to blackmail and intimidate MPs to stop them from trying to force Boris Johnson out of office. Additionally, reports to me and others of members of staff at Number 10 Downing Street, special advisers, government ministers and others encouraging the publication of stories in the press seeking to embarrass those who they suspect of lacking confidence in the Prime Minister is similarly unacceptable. I went to see him in his office in the House of Commons last week. What happened to make you say something? Well, there was a number of sort of coordinated inquiries from publications to some of my colleagues who were presumed to be lacking confidence in in the then Prime Minister. And in a rather coordinated way, there seemed to be material or briefing, etc., used against them and clearly that had come from somewhere and um, was designed deliberately to intimidate or indeed to put them off from a a course of action that they decided upon. We complain about toxicity directed towards MPs but my goodness me we don't half say collectively some toxic things about one another to one another publicly, privately and then we start whinging that we, we get it as well, well it's no surprise because that's the culture we inculcate. And so until we can break out of that cycle, I mean, why on earth should we be surprised that we get it back? And do you feel that dark arts, either to other members of the same party or to sort of opposition MPs, are ever acceptable? No, I don't think they are. It's a very pressured place, this. And um, I think that if you go about deploying, you know, the threat, and it doesn't, I'm not talking about, you know, Everything's framed in the negative, shall we say it that way. It makes it a very difficult environment. So if you're a political dark artist, what tools do you have in your arsenal? Well, there's the spying, the surveillance, the briefings to the press, and of course, the attack ads. People are much more willing to talk about using these weapons against the other side. But as I found out, they are sometimes used against colleagues too. But the question I really want answered, how effective are these dark arts really? And is it not a better idea for people to just focus on saying positive things about themselves instead? Coming up. It's always a dangerous game. But what's happened, I think, is the trust bit has been slowly eroded. Stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes 
to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Every Prime Minister has a moment when their fortunes change dramatically for the worse. The moment from which they never really recover. For John Major, it was Black Wednesday. For Tony Blair, the Iraq War. David Cameron had Brexit and Liz Truss had, well, okay, Liz Truss had pretty much every single day she was Prime Minister. But for Gordon Brown, for Gordon Brown, the moment came on the 6th of October 2007, when he announced he would not be proceeding with what had become a hotly anticipated snap election. I'll not be calling an election, and let me explain why. I have a vision for change in Britain, and I want to show people how in government we're implementing it. Andy Coulson watched the announcement with glee. He was head of comms for opposition leader David Cameron, having left News UK the year before. He's now set up a PR firm and hosts his own rival podcast, Crisis What Crisis? Coulson is probably best known for his own crisis, being convicted of phone hacking back in 2014 and spending 18 months in jail. But back in 2007, for Coulson, sitting in Tory HQ, Brown's election flip-flop was a political opportunity that had to be taken advantage of. If your opposite number stumbles, makes an error that you think might just reveal a useful truth, it's kind of your job to dive in and make sure people understand it. And that's kind of how I saw it, really. I think one of the things that I was able to sort of make a bit of progress on was the indecision of Gordon Brown, right? And that became a very important character flaw that we absolutely picked away at. You do not want a prime minister who is indecisive. You might say, given everything that's gone since, that it's a fairly minor character flaw, but it, at the time it was pretty significant. And we were onto that very early. And so that was a campaign, actually, uh, that I just kept reminding journalists of. Well, here's another example when I would use it, and we would use it, we'd deploy it in, in PMQs. And so when it came to the very important moment of indecision, when he decided not to call an election, then everything kind of came together and we were able to, in tabloid terms, kind of describe him as someone who'd bottled it. That really cut through. And we communicated that in some fairly sophisticated ways and some fairly unsophisticated ways. You know, we put people in bottle suits and put them outside number 10. And you're laughing, quite rightly. I laughed when I saw them and sent them all off, I can tell you. They had Newcastle Brown. The only bottle suits that we could get had been used as a promotional tool for Newcastle Brown Owl. And so I had to get the Newcastle Brown Owl logo off, obviously, and we put Brown bottled it or something similar. There were discussions about whether or not there'd be a copyright breach, I think. I seem to remember some, someone in the team saying, we can't do this, please, it will be fine. But someone wrote a... Someone in the team quickly wrote up a kind of 12 Brown Bottles song that they were all singing while holding their placards. Now, on one level, it's puerile. It's absolutely everything that politics should not be. However, it cut through. Those pictures ended up on the front of pretty much every newspaper. The people in the suits 
ended up on the 10 o'clock news. Right? And the only message that you got was Brown Bottler. Brown's decision was already damaging to him, but Andy Coulson and David Cameron managed to create a wounding attack with a simple and silly stunt. But Coulson's point is these stunts or attacks only work if they are revealing an authentic, genuine truth. And what dirty tricks and dark arts did Coulson use in opposition? I'm not going to pretend that we didn't enjoy what you would absolutely categorise as sort of negative campaigning during our time. We certainly did. But it's not really where we spent most of our time. And also a lot of what's considered to be the kind of big negative moments were both for us and for Gordon Brown were entirely self-inflicted. Right? If you think about David, slightly before my time, I'd like, I mean, literally weeks before I joined, one of the worst moments for David was when he was caught putting his shoes into the back of a chauffeur-driven car when he then cycled to work. Really damaging. And by the way, stuck with him right up until the election. When you talk about negative campaigning, mm. people, especially now, I feel like, would blame, well, you know, Labour got hold of this tape or the Tories got hold of this tape. I feel like the way you see it is like, well, if you, don't, if you haven't done anything wrong, then you won't get caught out. Is, is that the way you see it? Yes, but I think there's also, and it's difficult to put a time stamp on this, right? When do things start? It's, it's always a dangerous game because I think you'll, you'll find examples even before my time in politics. But what's happened, I think, is the trust bit has been slowly eroded. The most important relationship is the trust between our politicians and the British public, which has without doubt been eroded for a whole bunch of different reasons. Perhaps it's for this reason, the erosion of public trust, that means even given Coulson's reputation as a ruthless news-of-the-world hack turned Tory spinner, he's no fan of Labour's recent attack ads that personally blame Rishi Sunak for sex offenders avoiding jail. I think they're a mistake. I think it's old school. I think it's when you're trying to present yourself as something fresh and new and different, which obviously Labour are attempting to do at the moment, and where, as you know, Sir Keir Starmer has done, has, has kind of you know, been pretty quick to complain when things have got personal in the past. I think that is a much more difficult game to play now. There is a long-standing tradition across the globe of politicians going for their opponent's jugular. But, as Coulson says, they work best when they show something about their opponent. One of the most famous examples was used by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. In 1964, Johnson's campaign released a television advert that terrified the nation. The president implied that his opponent, Barry Goldwater's approach to the Cold War, would lead to nuclear annihilation. Then, the Republicans won just six states, to LBJ's 44. Here in the UK, who could forget the Saatchi and Saatchi, Labour's not working billboard, William Hague's face superimposed onto Margaret Thatcher's head, or Ed Miliband peeping out of Alex Salmon's pocket? Former Tory minister and deputy chief whip Anne Milton thinks all negative campaigning is a mistake. I'm not very happy with political arts in campaigning or otherwise, never been a fan. I think it increasingly puts the public off, and particularly at the moment where I think the public's view of politicians is quite low. So you think it's sort of become worse received and it's sort of less accepted by the public now than it was? I think the reception of any sort of negative campaigning, political dark arts, is likely to be less favourable than ever it was. Definitely. 
I mean, I remember back in the days with John Major and, you know, the Conservative Party running poster campaigns about Tony Blair. Didn't go down that well then. I think it would go down far worse today. And I think it's quite dangerous to do it because it further disenfranchises, if you like, the public from democracy and bothering to vote. What does Guido's Paul Staines think of the Labour attack ads? I thought it was a a bit like the Brexit bus. They knew it would be controversial and people say that's going too far. You could say less paedophiles will be locked up whilst Rishi's being Premier. You know, that would be fair research. But that's just a chart, isn't it? But saying Rishi doesn't care, they knew that was a lie. Obviously Rishi does want paedophiles locked up. So it was done for effect, and, you know, that is effective, unfortunately. And because we've got so much noise with social media, to be effective, you have to have shock. He thinks the public say they don't like negative campaigning, but the truth is... My traffic figures were totally the opposite. People, they're all very high-minded, but everyone gets down and dirty when they need to. And election campaigns, particularly internal election campaigns, so like leadership campaigns for the parties... David Cameron's ex-head of comms, Giles Kenningham, can also see the advantages in the negative and thinks we're likely to see much more like the Labour attack ads in the next year. That was them road testing stuff to sort of see, can we do this? What's the public reaction like? Will this stick? I think there's a recognition they think they're going to have to take the gloves off to try and get over the line. And you can kind of see with Starmer, I'm not sure how comfortable it sits with him. He doesn't really like the punch and Judy politics necessarily, but I think those around him are probably saying to him, look, this is a necessity if you're going to win. The negative stuff, the disruption stuff, which often you'll chuck out in the middle of the day, and it might not go beyond Westminster Village, but the opportunity cost is huge. The opposition are spending half their time having to clear that up. And do you think that attack stories are anything you did change the course of the election or change the course of sort of politics history i wouldn't be as grand as to suggest that no i think it but i think it's an important part of your campaign it's an important part of the rough and tumble of politics it definitely puts your opponent on the back foot it wastes a lot of time it can completely dent and undermine confidence you know in your own team and you know politics is a confidence game so from that perspective it plays a function this final kind of 18 months, 12 months selection is when you want to be gathering your material and you'll be deciding that. What do we want to use in the run-up? What do we want to hold back for the short campaign? What's going to be the most destabilising thing? And what does former spy and current peer John Woodcock think? Does he still think the spying he did was justified? If this was being said to a public or semi-public in that you could just go and get tickets to it, then it was fair game and it deserved to have wider scrutiny. Subsequently, once I was an MP, actually, I got the tables turned on me and the Tories sent someone to one of my big fundraisers. And what they did, I think, clearly crossed a line. I think if you'd gone to my fundraiser and you'd taken a tape of whoever it was that was speaking to the audience and there'd been something interesting in that, that would have been fair game. But what they did was that they recorded the private conversation between at least one of the people sat around the table and then got that story out there. And is there still a place for this in 2023? I mean, I'd love to go all John Lennon and imagine a world where, 
we can all just have an old completely open open discourse and no one tries to do gotcha and and everyone is like completely open and they say the same thing but it's not going to happen anytime soon and i think it's inevitable it's going to happen and and where it's done effectively i think it can guide public debate through the media into the actual genuine policy choices that lie behind sometimes what the politicians might want to talk about. And what of his relationship with Howard Flight, his one-time victim and now long-term fellow House of Lords dweller? Have you apologised to Howard? Has he forgiven you? Um, I, I haven't actually. I mean, this is, the message has been relayed sort of third hand. If and when I, I, I do see him in, in, in the Lords, if this comes out, I will seek his... Um, forbearance. He's been a very kind and patient man. And I suppose, you know, things did work out for Lord Flight in the longer term. I asked Howard Flight if he wanted to come on this podcast, but he politely declined. So it seems he might not completely agree that it all worked out in the end. But look, you'll never struggle to find people criticising the dark arts in politics. William Ragg and Anne Milton are scathing. Even Andy Coulson, of all people, think Labour's latest attack ads go too far. But as Paul Staines of Guido points out, people want to read this stuff. The Labour attack ad was their most viewed PR content of the year. The dark arts have brought down MPs and advisers plenty of times before, and will no doubt do so again. An election is looming, with Labour being advised by Australians to aim low and get personal, and Sunak being encouraged by his own MPs to be more negative. Could it be this? rather than a positive vision that decides the next election? Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. We're now on a season break over the summer, but don't forget you can go back and choose from 10 seasons worth of episodes. If you've enjoyed this topic, I would recommend Alva's episode on the murky world of the whips from season eight. My producer was Dan Hardoon of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back at the end of August. See you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.